Well, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to pick back up where we left off. Um, after Advent, we finished Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and we're going to pick back up at verse 11. And as we come back to Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, I want to remind you something I said a couple of months ago. One way you could sum up the entire letter of Ephesians is this, be who you are in Christ. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. Hey church, be who you are in Christ. Now the first three chapters of the letter are Paul reminding us who we are in Christ. And the last three chapters, four through six, are Paul exhorting us, encouraging us, challenging us. Now, you know who you are in Christ, go be who you are in Christ. And and be that in several ways. Be that in your relationships with one another as a church, that's most of chapter four. Be that in your family life, that's most of chapter five, and spilling into chapter six. Be that in your work relationships, he'll get into that a little bit in chapter six. And do all this in the normal, everyday relationships uh, and callings of your life. Be who you are in Christ. And then he concludes chapter 6 by warning us that we will be opposed by hell itself. Um, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I think he meant by that, it will try, they will try but he will build his church. And so Paul is reminding these folks, these dear uh, believers in Ephesus, who have only been a church for about 10 years at this point, like us, uh, he's reminding them who they are in Christ and then encouraging them to go and be that in the places where they work, live, and play. So let's stand together and hear what he has to say to us in these Verses, verses 11 to 22, as he reminds us who we are in Christ Jesus. Hear the word of the God who loves his church, the word of the God who loves you. Paul writes, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. And if you'll be patient with me as I am assisted by this cough drop, um, and pray that my voice will hold up. Um, when I was a young high schooler, one of my neighbors, uh, who's an adult man, a professional, um, that I really respected, uh, he was a friend of mine in the neighborhood, he invited me to an informational meeting that he was hosting at his medical office. And uh, I didn't know what this was about, so I, I went to the meeting, and about a dozen or so of us were sitting in a circle in his waiting room, and uh, I was the only teenager in the room, a room full of adult men and women, all these professional-looking people. Um, All of us were friends and neighbors of this man who had invited us. So as we got going in the meeting, he showed us a video Uh, that was produced by a grassroots organization that was trying to promote peace, harmony, and unity in the world. Uh, They showed clips from wars and military conflicts between nations. They talked about how humanity had spiraled to a new low in hostility and violent aggression and hatred. And they, in this video, were casting a vision for a a new society, a a utopian dream of world peace. And one of the ways that they especially hoped to accomplish this uh, new world peace was by advocating for bilateral disarmament, disarmament of nuclear weapons by all the major superpowers in the world. Wow, well, this is interesting. Thanks for the invitation. Hmm, what is this about? So after the video, my friend asked everybody in the circle to just kind of respond to what they had seen and heard and what their thoughts were. So each person, we just went around the circle. And as we went around the circle and I was listening, I could tell that this video had really tapped into uh, a desire that these folks had for human harmony. I mean... They, they all were hungry for this new way of living together as people and nations. But then it was my turn, me, the youngest in the room, the teenage boy who knows all things. I took a deep breath, and I said something like this. Granted, it was 35 years ago, so it's a little fuzzy. I said something like this, probably not quite as sophisticated as I'm about to say it, but I said, I understand that we all want to get along, and I'm all for peace and harmony and all that stuff, 
But, but I can't help but wonder, I mean, aren't we all just selfish at, at, on the inside? I mean, aren't we all just selfish? I mean, isn't it part of human nature to, to only look out for ourselves? I don't know. I'm just trying to understand how a whole world full of selfish, self-centered people are going to come together and figure out a way to stop fighting and stop having wars and learn how to live together in peace and harmony. I don't know. I'm not sure we can do that on our own. Well, guess who didn't get invited back to the meetings? Um, And I promise, I think... I think that I said that not with arrogance, but just I was just trying to figure it out. And it just didn't make sense to me how we were going to make this happen. Now, listen, before we scoff at these folks and say how foolish their, their dreams were, um, the truth is they're expressing the echoes in their hearts of what we were made for. They were expressing echoes of Eden. They were expressing these deep-seated memories that every human has of a time when God and people and all creation lived together in perfect harmony. There was a time. And, And like the people in Genesis 11 who built the Tower of Babel, these folks were trying to build a new humanity who would be one people with one purpose. That's all. They want what we all want. But what Paul is saying to the church in this letter is this. There's no way that selfish, sinful people can build that new humanity on their own. Jesus had to come and do it. We just read in chapter 2, verse 15, that Jesus came to create in himself one new man. That's not one new, like, male person. That's one new humanity, one new mankind. In place of the two, making peace. Jesus came to create a new humanity. And so Paul is making the bold claim, get this, that the church is the new humanity that we're all longing for. And he has the audacity to claim that only Jesus can put this new humanity together. The church is the new humanity that we all long for. Now, at this point, you should be thinking, wait a second, Jimmy. Now, I love the church and everything, but have you been to church? Have you been a part of a church? Yes, I have been a part of a church for 44 years, and I have been uh, on a church staff for over 30 of those. I'm well aware that we don't always look like the new humanity that lives in peace and harmony um, that Paul is talking about. Um, I've seen church conflict. I've felt it. I've caused it, okay? So I'm with you on that. But Paul is aware of this too. Paul is, is not pretending that the church does live in the, human, in the harmony and unity that it was created to live in. Look, look at verse 11. He starts it off this way. He says, therefore, remember 
that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What, what is that all about? Well, he's acknowledging right away that there's this at least one huge opportunity for conflict and disunity in the church in Ephesus. The fragile relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Jews, the circumcision. Gentiles, the uncircumcision. Paul is admitting right here in this letter that there's a history of name-calling and contempt between these two groups of people. Let me just briefly try to give you a little history behind that. Circumcision was a physical mark that God gave his people to symbolize how they were to be a people whose uncleanness had been cut away. A people set apart from the nations so that through, God, through them, God would pour out life to the nations. He told Abraham in Genesis 12, in you and your people, all the families of the earth will be blessed. One day, a seed of Abraham would be the savior of the world, the Messiah, Jesus. But over time, circumcision became less of a reminder that they were to be a people set apart from the world for the life of the world. And this mark made by hands in human flesh became a symbol of national pride instead. It became a way that the Jews would determine who was inferior and who was superior. The phrase, the uncircumcised, became a label of derision. They referred to themselves as the circumcised, as a label of honor. You remember uh, David, when he fought Goliath, even, even used it as a derogatory term. He said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So over time, the uncircumcised became a term of derision and contempt. Uh, William Barclay described the animosity between Jews and Gentiles this way. He said the Jew had an immense contempt for Gentiles. The Gentiles, said the Jews, were created, this is what they said, they were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loves only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need, for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with the Gentile was the equivalent of death. And the Gentiles had the same contempt for Jews. They called the Jews enemies of the human race. And they described them as people filled with a hostile disposition toward everybody. So these two groups of people, I mean, if you're going to choose two groups of people who hate each other as an example... There they were. And these were the people who were coming together to form the church in Ephesus. 
in Ephesus. So God has made a new humanity out of these two groups who bring this history of hostility into the same church. Is God just asking for trouble here? No. God wants to show the world what the blood of Jesus can do. And he takes the most difficult problem he can think of and says, watch this. Paul knows the church is going to struggle with being this new harmonious humanity. But that's why he's writing the letter. Uh, When we get to chapter 4, the section, you know, chapter 4 is where the section starts of the practical application of being who you are in Christ. This is how he starts chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, which I've just described in chapters 1 through 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He's talking to Jewish and Gentile Christians. There is one body, he says, and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is pleading with them, please live as the new humanity that God in Christ has made you to be. So what Paul is telling us in chapter 2 this morning is meant to help the church do the work of chapter 4. I want to ask us this morning, what, what divisions do we bring in to this church? We don't bring the same Jews versus Gentiles division into the church. I don't know of a single soul in our church who is a converted Jew. And if you are one, come and tell me, because I think that's cool and I'd like to know about it. But we're all Gentiles here. So we don't have the exact same uh, history of hostility that they have. But we bring other divisions uh, with us into the church. Here are a few that I tried to think of, and you may think of others. I'm not trying to start a fight. But what are some of the labels that, that Christians and in our church we claim uh, that are similar to the circumcision and the uncircumcision? How about the left versus the right? How about the reformed versus the not-so-reformed, whatever that is? How about white-collar versus blue-collar? How about... The Vols versus the Tide. Now, them's fighting words right there. Yeah, sorry. How about the public schoolers versus the private schoolers versus the homeschoolers? Things we divide over. How about uh, the from the mountain people versus the you ain't from around here people, right? How about the northerners versus the southerners? How about uh, the city folk versus the country folk? How about the people who like stodgy old hymns and the people who like those touchy-feely worship choruses? 
How about the older generations versus the younger generations? How about the people who like this preacher versus the people who like that preacher? How about the people who have left versus the people who have stayed? How about the original Mountain Fellowshippers versus the new Mountain Fellowshippers? My goodness. If there's a way that we can divide over something, we're going to find it, right? So we need to hear what Paul has to say to the Ephesian church as much as they did. Our divisions may be different, but they're just as real and just as dangerous. So let's look back at chapter 2. Paul has one command for the church in this passage. There's only one thing that he says, do this, and it's the word remember. Remember. It's as if he's saying, you're going to be tempted to focus on how you're different, but I want you to remember how you're the same. So, in the rest of these verses, which are pretty dense and, and I'm not going to get into all the intricacies of this passage. But what I want to try to do for you is show you that there are two things in this passage that Paul wants us to remember. And uh, I, even, I even came up with some hand motions to go with them. Yeah. So here we go. The first thing that he wants us to remember is to remember that all of us were separated from God, but by the blood of Jesus, God brought us near to him. Okay? That's the first thing to remember. We're all separated from God, but by the blood of Jesus, God brought us near to himself. And the second thing he wants us to remember is that we were all separated from each other But in Jesus, we're all one church. And I do it like this. Do you remember when you were a kid, did you ever do the, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, see all the people. How many of you did that when you were a kid? See, look, most of you. And you you looked at me like I was from outer space. You need to teach your children that because it's a great illustration of what we're talking about this morning. We were all separated from one another. But in Jesus, he has made us all one church. Those two things are what Paul wants us to remember. He's going to go back and he's going to talk about one and then talk about the other. Talk about one and then talk about the other. So let's look at the passage as quickly as I can, and show you how he goes from one of those to the other, and he, and he unpacks them a little bit and helps us to remember them. So he, he starts with saying that through Jesus, you're no longer separated from God, okay? That separation from God in Jesus has been removed. He says in verse 12, remember, You were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You notice this, the same pattern that was in verses 1 through 10 where he said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. He's doing it again. You were separated, but now 
You are not separated. You've been brought near. Now, there specifically, he's talking to the Gentiles, but it applies to the Jews too, and we'll get that to in, in a minute. So that's the first one. Again, he starts off by saying, remember, you were once separated from God, but through Jesus, the blood of Jesus has brought you near to God. And then he switches to the other one, that in Jesus, you're no longer separated from each other. So he goes from vertical separation to horizontal separation in verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, there was a a wall surrounding the temple and temple courts um, that was a few steps down from the main uh, courts and the temple proper. And, And that wall was meant to separate out the Gentiles. So on this side of the wall was the court of the Gentiles. And they could see the temple and see the other courts where the Jews were allowed to go, but they could not approach it. They could not go beyond that wall. In fact, there was a sign on the wall that said, no foreigner may enter with the, no foreigner may enter the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They couldn't get beyond that wall. Now, whether Paul's talking about that wall or not, it's a great illustration for the wall that was dividing people from God and from one another, the Gentiles from the Jews. But remember, the Jews were also separated from God. They may have been a little nearer uh, to the Holy of Holies, but there was still a curtain that separated them from the mercy seat, from the Ark of the Covenant, from the place where uh, the blood of the Lamb was shed for the forgiveness of God's people. And you remember um, that Jesus, when he was crucified, um, the, the, that curtain that separated the Jews from God was torn from top to bottom. Jesus had come to fulfill all... <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus had come to fulfill all that the temple and the sacrificial system stood for, all that the commandments expressed in ordinances represented. So Jesus came and shed his blood so that both Gentiles and Jews could get all the way in to the Holy of Holies and have fellowship with God because the blood of the Lamb was spilled. And so once he came, all that all the commandments expressed in ordinances were obsolete. They were gone. They were, had been fulfilled by Jesus. Here's what this teaches us. There's no more hostility between God and those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there should be no hostility between followers of Jesus because we're all one in him. He's broken down the wall between us and God and therefore He's broken down the wall between 
believers and believers. There should be no hostility between followers of Jesus. I want to ask, what this morning is a source of hostility between you and another Christian? I'm thinking particular with, particularly within our body or within our community. What is that source of hostility between you and another Christian? Is it maybe a line of division that you've brought from the culture into the church? Friends, Paul is saying Jesus tore down the walls that divide us. Who are we to try to rebuild them? Who are we to try to rebuild the walls that Jesus has torn down between us? And so now Paul, in verse 17, he'll go back again to the the first principle to remember that through Jesus, we're no longer separated from God. Paul says, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So, Some were far off and some were near, but neither of them had access to the Messiah. The Jews were near because, as he said earlier, they were the commonwealth or the kingdom of Israel. They were near in a sense because they were God's chosen people and they had the covenants of promise. They were nearer in a sense because they had hope They knew the true and living God. They knew who he was. In that sense, they were near God. But the Gentiles were far off. They were separated from the kingdom of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. (coughs) They (coughs) They had no hope. And they were without God. They didn't know the God of Israel. So in that sense, they were far off. From God. But while that may make Jews and Gentiles sound very different, some are near, some are far off, Paul is saying they're actually very much the same. They both needed to be brought near by the blood of Christ, Christ Jesus. They both needed Jesus to preach to them about the peace he was making by his blood. Neither the Jews nor the Gentiles had access to God without Jesus. No matter how close or far they were, they could not get in without Christ Jesus. And so the principle is this. Listen, Jews, you can't act superior to the Gentiles because you need the blood of Jesus to be near to God as much as the Gentiles do. And listen, Gentiles, you don't have to feel inferior to the Jews. You have access to the Holy of Holies now just like they do. Because of the blood of Jesus, you have as much access to God as they do. So how does this apply to us? Well, let me ask you, what might make you feel superior to others in this church? What what could it be that would, would tempt you to think that you are somehow Superior. Maybe you know more about the Bible. Maybe you serve more than other people. 
Maybe you've been a Christian longer than some other folks. Maybe you understand Presbyterian theology better than the next person. Maybe your kids are better behaved than my kids. So obviously that means you're a better parent. Maybe you're not as quirky as the pastor. Maybe you're one of the original Mountain Fellowshippers. And who are all these interlopers? (laughs) Maybe you come from the mountain. I don't know. Let God show you where do you think you might be superior to others? And then remember, none of that earns you peace with God. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nothing makes you nearer to God than the blood of Jesus. Nothing makes you nearer to God than the blood of Jesus. Turn away from anything that you might think makes you superior to another Christian and turn your focus back to Jesus. Now, there are some of us who feel more, who feel inferior to others in the church. And we don't, we agree, <laughs> they're superior. Now, I, haven't, I haven't been a Christian that long, or I don't know enough about the Bible. I, I don't even, I'm not good at praying out loud. Uh, Man, if these people knew my past, I've got to be the worst sinner in this room. Or, you know, I'm new to this mountain. I'm still trying to figure out what culture is here. I'm new to this church. I'm, I'm, I'm just a kid. I'm not enough. I don't know what, what it might be that makes you think you're inferior to any of the rest of us. But Paul is saying, because the blood of Jesus has brought you near to God, you are as near to God as anybody else in this room. You're not inferior. The blood of Jesus makes you near to God. Not what you do, not what you know. I hope that encourages you. (laughs) You are no more near to Jesus than the blood of Jesus makes you. And you are no less near to Jesus than the blood of Jesus makes you. So then I ask myself, okay, this great Paul says to remember this, but what will remembering this do in me that will make me be What will remembering this do in us as a church that will make us be the new humanity that we are in Christ? How will it help us? Well, when we get back to chapter four, Paul's gonna say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. You know, those are the two words that Jesus described his heart. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Come to me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart. Paul just flips the two words around, and he says, have all humility, lowliness, and gentleness. And he says, have patience and bear with one another in love. What Paul is saying is, if we remember who we are, that we have been brought near to Jesus through the blood of Jesus and that we've been brought together as one people through the cross of Jesus, it will humble us. It will gentle us. It will make us patient with one another. It will help us to bear with one another, with one another in love. It will help us to begin to love each other like Jesus loves us. So, Mountain Fellowship, let, let's, let's be the people who, who throws out all categories of superior and inferior and just looks at Jesus and says, your blood has made me nearer to you than I could ever get. Your blood has made Stephen nearer to you than he could ever get. Sharon or anybody, anybody who knows Jesus, we're all as near as we're going to get. Nobody's far off and nobody's near. We're all with him, in him. And that should humble us and gentle us with each other. I think. I think that's what Paul's saying. And then finally, in verses 19 to 22, he goes back to remember that you were separated from each other, but in Jesus, God has made you one church. He says, you're no longer strangers and aliens. And then he gives three metaphors for the church. He says, you are fellow citizens. That's a kingdom metaphor with the saints, and you're members of the household of God. That's a family metaphor. And then he says, you're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. That's the third one. We are his temple. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Mount Fellowship, we're a kingdom and we are fellow citizens of the same kingdom. And Jesus is our king. He is the one who demands and deserves all of our allegiance together. So what difference does that make for how we relate to one another? Friends, I want to say this with as much love and compassion and pastoral privilege as I can here. But if Jesus is our king, that matters in the way we relate to each other politically. Your favorite political leader did not shed his blood for you. She did not shed her blood for you. But Jesus did. And he shed his blood for your fellow Christian who likes a different politician and likes different policies. 
your political party and platform must always, always take second place to King Jesus and his kingdom, a distant second place. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. You and your Christian brother or sister who have different political convictions are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven and both subjects to King Jesus. Don't let the kingdoms of men come between you and your fellow citizen of the kingdom of God. Okay? And that does, that's, I'm talking to both sides. We are fellow citizens of his kingdom. Paul says we're members of the household of God. We're we're members of his family. This church is a family. It's a messy family. What family is it? But we're a family, folks. So this church and this church's ministries are not products to be consumed. We're a family who follows Jesus together, who stumbles along and tries to follow him. And the ministries of the church are just things that we do together as a family to enjoy our nearness to Jesus that he gave us. So when we worship together and we sing together and we burn Christmas trees together and we go to Sunday school together and we get in small groups together, we're, we're just a family trying to get together uh, to enjoy the nearness that Jesus has bought us with his blood, the nearness to God and to one another. Sometimes it's messy. (laughs) But we can look at each other and go, uh, she's mess, she's a mess, but she's my mess because she's his mess. And then Paul says we're a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The temple was the place where the presence and glory of God rested in the presence of the nations. And we are one of those places, we are one of those temples on Signal Mountain where the presence and glory of God rests. And when Jesus prayed in John 17, the night before he was crucified, He prayed this for us. He said to his father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, father, that they may become perfectly one. Why? He says, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So Jesus says, Because they're mine, they're my new temple, I have put my glory on them so that the world would see it in the way they relate with one another and love and live in the place I've put them. And they would know and believe that you sent me, Father. So Mountain Fellowship, we as the temple of God, we get to have the presence and glory of Jesus rest in our community so that the rest of this community 
could look at us and go, God must have sent Jesus because there's no way these people would get along. (laughs) There's no way. And that's why Paul goes on in chapter 4 to urge us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me ask us this morning, are we eager to maintain the unity that we have in Christ? I'll leave you with this. In verse 14, Paul said, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace. He could have just said, for he is our peace. But he said, he emphasized it, he said, for he himself is our peace. And I think part of what he's saying there is, it's not what, just what Jesus did for us that gives us peace with God and peace with each other. It's who Jesus is in us that is our peace. There's a subtle difference. Surely it's what he did for us, but it's who he is to us and for us and in us that is our peace. So let me encourage you with this. You've probably heard me say that Robert Murray Machine was famous, famous for saying, for every one look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Well, let's do it this way. Let's change that a little bit and say, for every one look at your church member, your fellow Christian, for every one look at what divides us or could, take 10 looks at Jesus. He himself is our peace. Friends, if you and I will make every effort to continue to be close to him and pursue him and to look at him, we'll be in peace with one another. Can't help but be. We will all have hearts that know the peace of Christ and that know his love for us. So Paul's two reminders I'll say this again, and then we'll come to the table. Thank you for your patience in letting me get through that. I feel like it was important to say. But remember, all of us were once separated from God, but by the blood of Jesus, he brought us near to himself. And all of us, We're at one time separated from each other, hostility between us. But in Jesus, we're all one church. Let's be eager to maintain that unity in the spirit of Jesus. Father, would you help us do that? And uh, we thank you for this reminder at the table of what it cost for you to bring hostile parties together into a happy family. And would you help us as a church body? Um, I'm not worried about what church XYZ down the road is doing. We, we've got to start with us. Would you help us um, to know Jesus 
that he himself is our peace. Would you help each of us to continue to come to him, to look to him, to lean on him, to love him, to walk with him, to talk with him. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did for us as is represented in this meal. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.